Alzheimer's Speaks today. I am thrilled that you are here with us and we're going to have a fabulous conversation and I will get more into that um, as soon as I just kind of give our new listeners a little feel for who we are and what we do. Bottom line, Alzheimer's Speaks is a is a, is a radio show, but it's much more than that. We provide multiple platforms from uh, webinars uh, and video to live speaking to blogs. Our resource uh, website is filled with things and our whole goal is to shift dementia care around the world from crisis to comfort. And I started this because my mom had dementia for 30 years and so it was life-changing and I just really felt a need for everyone to kind of come together and find those services, products, and tools, and just helpful thoughts of of support, um, because it can be an isolating and frustrating journey, uh, not only for the ones diagnosed, but for those who who love and care for them as well. And so I hope you'll enjoy the show today. Uh, We have listeners all around the world. It'll be a fun-filled show, and um, our, our guest today is a poet, and she's going to share her experiences of walking this path uh, with a loved one uh, through poetry, and she's written a beautiful book that we will talk a little bit more. If you are a business, we are here to help you expand your brand footprint, so just reach out to me, and we can help increase your, your marketing base and increase the knowledge of your product, service, or tool that you have uh, with our listeners. Now, I I do want to give a shout out to Lisa Marie uh, Chirico. She is doing her second annual cruise, um, and she does a fabulous job on this. I highly recommend her. And you can go to allscruisetropics.com. That's A-L-Z cruisetropics.com. And find out more. She's got an event uh, coming up next year that I think will be a lot of fun. March uh, 1st through the 8th, she's going to be taking a Caribbean cruise for people with early to mid dementia and their care partners. I also want to give a shout out to Stall Catchers, a fun game you can play to help analyze real Alzheimer's data. Just go to stallcatchers.com. And of course, the Memory uh, Cafe Directory. If you are looking for a memory cafe or if you want yours listed in the memory cafe, just go to memory cafe directory and Dave will get you all set up with information there. He has not only a directory for the U.S., but he's working at other countries as well. And last, I'm just going to give a shout out. If you are in Massachusetts, I'm going to be out there November 13th through the 15th with Artist Senior Living of Reading and um, also of Lexington. And I would love to meet you. So why don't you come to one of those events? Or if you're in Alabama, the Alabama CARES program with the East Alabama Area on Aging is putting on a conference. And I'll be there 
November 20th through the 23rd. And again, it's always fun to, to meet up with some of our followers. So let me introduce our guest. Uh, Sue Kroll is a writer who lives in Edmonton, um, Alberta, Canada. Uh, her father died about six years ago, and she published a book called Cold Metal Stairs from uh, Turnstone Press, which is about his dementia and eventually his death. Sue has written previous books, um, or a previous book called Blood Mother, um, and that was about the birth of her children. After the book um, about the beginning of life, Sue never anticipated 10 years later, she would be writing a book about the end of life. So I'm just thrilled to have you with us, Sue. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Well, great. Um, I always, you know, I had mentioned that um, you, your father had dementia, but can you give us a little, a little background on that? Like when you started noticing things and. Yeah, um, he began to have, um, my dad began to have memory problems and some personality changes, I guess in around 2009. And uh, he was hospitalized and entered long-term care about a year later. And he died uh, actually of pneumonia in uh, 2013. Okay, great. Thanks for sharing that. That's that's always helpful just to have that little bit of background. Yeah. Let's talk about your book, Cold Metal Stairs. Why did you decide to write it, Sue? Um, well, I, I didn't set out to, to write a book about my dad at all. And, and in fact, I wasn't even able to write about this experience for about uh, 18 months after my father's death. Uh, I mean, I wasn't able to write poems. I had been keeping journals and diary entries all through my dad's illness. But uh, after about 18 months, poems just began to come. And what can people expect to find in the book? Okay. Um, readers will find narrative poems that tell the story of my father's dementia, uh, his diagnosis, his hospitalization, and then increasing physical illness, his eventual death, and then a, a kind of mourning period um, where the family kind of comes to terms with his illness and, and with his life as well. Great. Now, I know that you wrote a poem about your dad's um, eventual diagnosis, which you call Hands and Face. Would you mind reading that to us and sharing that with our audience? Sure. Um, I'll just give a little background. Um, this poem came about when I was um, thinking about one of the mini mental tests that my dad was given. And in this test, he was instructed to draw a clock face. And this connected in my mind with the image of a compass. So the coming together of the clock and the compass led to the writing of this poem, uh, which is called Hands and Face. It is true. I will remember the hands and face, the whole frustrating trickery of the thing. My mother tells how she dogged him to get all numbers limbed at their true points, noon and midnight, made for due north, six-headed south, the clock becoming a demented compass, a supposed proof fumbled for in that doctor's office right before my dad was officially diagnosed. I don't know where his attempted drawings of clocks are today. I don't know how that sudden uncertain face triggered his ragged response, three and nine, 
left off, or the hands wayward and drawn in the blank outside the clock. I don't know why that wrong clock condemned him, tripped him up, making that day the day they told us with all certainty it was dementia. Wow, that had to really be a, a moment for all of you to just take in. I, I know when yeah. we got the diagnosis, we weren't in person. We got a letter about three oh my goodness. after my mom yeah. got tested. And needless to say, things have changed in 35 years. But that was just devastating. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was just, yeah. now, now what? Did you get resources at all when you, you know, that's one of the big complaints a lot of people have is, they're not, they're not given any resources. Well, I guess we did some research on our own and then, and then, you know, there are associations. I mean, I guess Canada as well as the States has got, um, you know, Alzheimer's society. Um, but, you know, I guess it's, you kind of pick through what's available. Though he did get very good care when he was eventually hospitalized. I'll say that. Well, that, that's good. You know, when, when my mom was diagnosed, uh, we didn't even know there was an Alzheimer's Association. We didn't oh, know, my. We didn't know yeah. anything, and we really weren't given any, any information. You know, we were just kind of left to, to fret. Wow. Now, I, I know with your book, um, you know, the structure of it, I, I think, is broken down really nicely. And you've got another poem in there that I think kind of relays to kind of the major theme of your book with, with memory loss and things called My Father is a Swirl of Thought. And I thought that that was really a, a an interesting title and, and just a, a, the way you describe it is just quite beautiful. If you wouldn't mind sharing that, that poem as well. Sure. Um, my Father is a Swirl of Thought. My Father is an echo of himself entwined with memory and its loss. How can I say what I mean? My father is inside all the trees of my life, the impossible height of the world. Our old house remains, but on Google Street View, a chunk of time, a great gray blank has intervened, excavating my memory of that childhood road. The trees cut down and replanted I don't know how many times, weeping willow replaced with maple. And there is a fence where poplars bounded the lot and look at all that has been replaced, erased in our imperfect memories. Wow, what kind of response do you get from people on that poem? I just think it's, it's, it's very beautiful and very descriptive. Well, I guess it depends on if the people who hear it or read it have had, you know, any kind of dementia touch their lives and then they're always affected by them. Yeah, I, I would imagine that's the case. Yeah. There's another one that you have in there called um, the Constellation of Trees. And mm. can you tell us what inspired you to write this poem and why you feel it's important? Yeah, um, in, in my research um, uh, about dementia, I, I read that, that, there, that people who have dementia get a lot of comfort from just looking at trees and have a certain fascination for trees. 
uh, and also this was quite resonant for me because my dad was an arborist. So um, he loved and looked after trees all his life. And in fact, this poem eventually became the first poem in the book. The Consolation of Trees. With much taken away, it is a small mercy dementia patients have trees. Their remaining presence ceaselessly focusing the horizon. A horizon offering nothing that isn't in the present tense. But with much already lost, maybe it is luck to have trees filling the sky, opulent. In dementia, the mind is drawn in fascination to trees. The late summer soothing movement the wind makes of them, that hypnotic amazement. And with much already stolen, already forgotten, there is the consolation of trees flooding the mind, the sky ceaselessly remained into a gift. Oh, thank you. That is that is beautiful. Um, there were so many um, just gorgeous poems in your book. Um, and as I was going through it, you know, I noticed that you use the uh, term dementia versus a lot of people use the term Alzheimer's. Can you explain why you chose the term dementia? Uh, yeah, uh, my dad um, didn't have Alzheimer's, though, though I often, before this happened to our family, I, I thought of memory loss and Alzheimer's. But my dad actually had Lewy body dementia. Um, so I'll, I'll read a poem called Lewy body. Uh, and I'll just make a, a note that there's a reference to the Canadians in this poem, and that's the Montreal Canadiens hockey team. Louis Body. Those of you who know what this is may turn away, turn the page, and move on. You know everything you ever wanted to know about a dementia that fills the absolute area of all rooms with a Greek chorus of hallucinations, silent but commanding through the very fact of being in every room, all the time, watching, taking everything in. Louis Body took from my mother, too. Her lunch hour became racing home to check on my dad, now wandering. Dementia took her job. It took her peace. Dementia took my father and moved him to the hospital, and he was made to know everything about waiting for a long-term bed. Louis body, dementia filled his head and took his home, took his chair, his TV, and how he used to care when the Canadians beat whomever it was they beat. Louis body took his speech, his hands that could no longer get hold of anything. Louis body, dementia took his mind, leaving diabetes, kidney failure, and double lung pneumonia to carve up the rest. Now you truly know everything. Wow. Um, it's, it's interesting in that poem and, and just the, the various poems that you have in there, because in that poem you're talking about the loss of so many things. And then yet you've got another poem that you have entitled um, Undiminished. And so I, I think that would be a really interesting one to share 
um, with with our audience. And, and again, if you can give us a little history why why you wrote that one. Sure. Um, in this poem, um, once we knew what Louis Body was, I, I I tried to envision or or understand some of these hallucinations um, that he had, and which he he tried to describe to us when he could still speak. He said he he saw kind of flat black and white figures, almost like characters on the old Perry Mason TV show, which he used to love. Um, and also, this poem is a, a tribute to my sister, who, who at one point said to my dad about the hallucinations, uh, I can't see them, but I believe that you see them. Um, and I tried to capture what I imagined was the hallucinatory quality of his life at that point, as well as the, uh, really the weight and quality of my sister's love for our dad. Uh, this is called Undiminished. My sister sits placidly with my father's hallucinations. Their invading presence leaves her without fear, and she allows for their casual indifference clouding my father's distracted vision. His dreams are awake, undiminished in daylight. These hallucinations leave no shadow, and though they are benign and without weight, he is force-marched through their shallows daily. My sister moves aside when my father, with the complete daytime weight of his convictions, claims she is crowding his apparitions, which have become familiars. My sister shifts for those stark figures, their high-contrast black-and-white look of a jury from 1950s TV, now a familiar ghost presence in his diminished memory. But my sister, completely without fear, her love undiminished, accepts my father's shadows, his apparitions, which dance the weightless air they so persistently fill. You know, it's so neat when you can get to that that space of, of um, acceptance. Right, um, yeah. The love just, it, it just fills all the gaps. Mm-hmm. This is quite, quite beautiful. And I think sometimes people don't, don't realize, you know, when we accept um, how much that can, when we truly accept, a lot of times I think we think we're accepting, but I mean, Mm -hmm. when when we are just really, truly filled with grace and put them first, it just, it changes everything. It's, it's like a, to me anyways, I, I don't know if it was this way for you, but it was really like a spiritual awakening on a lot of levels for me mm-hmm. yeah you know it was yeah. so so powerful you have another uh, poem that you talk about and I think we've all been there this illogical wish of you know mm-hmm. to just go away come on scoot skedaddle let's get back to normal <laughs> <laughs> yeah as if yeah yes um the poem is called the wish the wish is that you can snap your fingers Play a single sharp note on the piano, say a magical word, find a miraculous potion or pill, and the clouds, the blur, the slack, hollow face will clear, quicken, come into sudden certain focus, and the personality, the person, it wouldn't be a reach to say soul, suddenly the soul will return to the inert body, collapsed into a chair, 
And that something, the wished-for medical miracle, the unreal remission, will revive my dad. I want him to reactivate or bubble into some kind of reanimation and for dementia to have been a dream, a fabrication or hallucination we can all break out of and forget forever. Yeah, I think we've all been there on that one. <clears throat> just yeah. get us back, just get us back in time. You, you mm-hmm. also wrote one about, um, you know, your father in long-term care that was called um, Present Continuous. And I think, you know, we, we all have such fear of, of placement, you know, of going back on maybe a promise that, that we would never do that and, and things. Yeah. Um, if you wouldn't mind sharing that one as well, that would be great. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just give a little background as well. Um, in, in a previous poem I read, Louis Body, uh, I write about how my father had to wait for a long-term bed, and he eventually got one in Canmore, Alberta, where my parents lived and where my mother still lives. Um, and my father's long-term care facility was attached to the regional hospital in the town of Canmore, So you'll hear a reference to hospital in the poem. Um, This poem speaks to how dementia pulls lives apart uh, because in the case of my parents, in the case of many people, they were separated by it when my dad had to go into care and, and we learned this legal term, involuntary separation. Um, So that's kind of the background to the poem a little bit. Um, And the poem is called Present Continuous. Present Continuous. Beginning with how to get to the lost beginnings of loss, as lost as his memory of the morning's breakfast, lost as yesterday or the day before that, or the last day the landscape outside his hospital window was in flower, in leaf. The beginnings of his last breath lodged in the room itself, and how many times, how many times he asked my mother to take him home, but this is your home now. How many times before pushing her way out of the ward, to the lobby, to the parking lot, to her car, to her single woman's apartment to cry out her loss. That was when he had a voice, when he could still make sense, make sentences taking place, in the slipping away past tense. In the end, it all became present. The past, even 20 minutes past, 20 minutes didn't last. It was today and today and today. And that was a version of hell. We thought all of it was hell and all were lost. Those stumbling souls closing the circular march round and round the restless clock of their days weeks, months. It was hell, but it held angels in the worst of that present continuous, angels to wake them and walk them, a landscape of angels to spoon up the spilled and the lost. Um, and of course, in that poem, I'm, the angels I'm referring to are the, are the healthcare aides and LPNs and RNs who looked after my dad. Uh, really with so much compassion in the three years that he lived in care. That, that's so nice that you, you wrote about them and, and noticed that. Um, 
have you gotten response from some of the people who took care of your your dad? They... No, this this book is newly published, so so I haven't um, I haven't read it in Canmore yet. Um, so perhaps in the future, yeah. Yeah, I would think that they would love uh, love mm-hmm. you know have maybe your... yeah and read that about their staff. I think that would be really a powerful thing. And I think sometimes uh, the care staff are undervalued with what they mm-hmm. do and, and how they do it. And, um, you know, it's not always perfect, but but it's not always perfect at home either, if we're honest. Well, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Now, um, you know, the bulk of the book, it kind of talks about the disease and, and the effect it has on, on everybody, really. Can you speak a little bit more about that? And I, uh, if I remember correctly, you have one called Dread Memory that kind of touches on that. I believe that's the correct one. Okay, yeah. Uh, firstly, I'll, I'll just say a little bit about, uh, you know, of course, my own sadness, but also guilt around my father's illness. And, and some of this has to do with geography. Uh, my parents lived in Canmore, as I said, and, and I live in Edmonton, which is a five-hour drive to the north, so I didn't get to see him as often as I would have liked, so this added to the guilt, um, but also to the anxiety or, or dread that when I would see him after a certain interval of time, that his condition would have you know, abruptly dropped down and that there would be these changes in him. Um, so I write about the anxiety and and dread of visiting him after some time, and this is called uh, Dread Memory. Canmore's main street falling into late afternoon shadow, and we'd trawl each store until we had to go, my mother and me. I don't know where my husband or kids are in this dread memory, but she'd take me to see him. My mother would make the turn into the lot, And I'd even dread the finding or not finding of a parking spot. I'd look at the lot, the pavement, the street, the town all around me and think, I'm in the mountains. I'd always think that in Canmore, the bulk of mountains across the skyline, robbing the light. I feel so much rock and loose stone and scree everywhere, at the edges of roads, pouring down ridges, even pebbles embedded in the grass beside gas stations, the gray edges, the chips, the dust in the air of this mountain town where my father was living his last days. So it would be the parking lot and the sun shooting out between the clouds all massing behind the peaks of the three sisters. Townspeople in their healthy get-ups with wrap around sunglasses and take out coffees and designer Gore-Tex. And my dad would, I feared, be a crumple of an old man I was afraid to see. I was afraid of being afraid. It was so stupid to be this embarrassed and self-conscious. Stupid to be afraid of old people, demented old people, but I was. Now it was the parking lot, each step to the hospital and passing the wall-to-ceiling dining room window of long-term care. Was he in there? Was he watching our approach? Would he know me? I couldn't see in. The window was opaque, suddenly suffused with light, the sun finding a break in those hulking mountains. Or more likely, I was afraid to look through the glass, 
afraid to focus on who might be there, afraid to see if he was the same as last time. I was afraid of who he had become or unbecome. You know, I can so relate to that. Um, my mom was very close, and so I got to see her often. But I, I remember mm-hmm. the time they moved her to a different neighborhood or community or whatever. Just that angst of how is that going to affect mm-hmm. Because I always thought yeah. it was higher functioning than where they were placing her. And I understood the rationale behind it, but there was just this yeah. daunting presence of, what's next and what's next yeah yeah this whole uncontrollable thing that you really have to let go of and just mm-hmm. kind of walk alongside it graciously but boy it's a difficult difficult thing to do um for most of us but you know once again you get to that acceptance level it, it's just a it's a game changer once you you let go and and just let be what's what's going to be um, right um now, you know, a great deal of your book, The Cold Metal Steers, is really about bridging, you know, that emotional distance between what used to be and what reality has now become and, and, and how do we express that. You've, you've done it, just a great job in this book. Um, and you've got one poem in there called Intense Light Blue. Can you kind of set that one up and share it with us, please? Sure. Um, uh, this is a poem about a Thanksgiving visit. Uh, in fact, it turned out to be our last visit this Thanksgiving because my dad died five months later. Um, intense light blue. How to write my father's intense light blue eyes. I now recognize as nearly blind to the present arranging itself hard before him. Intense light blue. I recognize eyes that stare hard at me. We are off. I've never realized that intense light. Off by ourselves in a hall near an exit. Eyes that look at me from behind that blue recliner where someone has arranged him. In this dead-end hall, I see intense recognition. This Thanksgiving, he will look at me, look hard. He tries for casual and pulls one leg up to cross. This visit, he will stare at me like he knows me, crosses one leg over the other in his chair, almost casual, yet nearly blind to his living loss. Is it shame he feels when he sees me looking as he tries hard to arrange what is left of his life? Is it sadness for where he lives now? What does he see? When he watches me stare, how do I write my father's intense light? Wow, again, another another beautiful, beautiful hitting poem. And, you know, you had mentioned that it was your last Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah. And stuff. And that's one of the things, too. And, it, and it's true, I think, with all of us. We never know when is the last one. But, yeah. but when there is a chronic illness, you're so much more aware that it could be. But yet we're still shocked when it is, I think, with that. Well, again, thank you for that. You just have, like I said, so many beautiful poems in here. You have one on how driving um, itself is a symbol of purpose and direction in 
in your father's um, what you call directional directionalist um, world. Can you can you share that one with us? Because I think that that yeah. I think the the symbolism and and just the different things that that trigger us to make connections to things is is very very interesting, and I think it's very um, healing too to to make these connections and to write it down or verbally state it. Um, did you did you find writing the book was a healing process for you? Um, in the long term, it was. You know, as I was in the middle of it, I was working on these poems, and and I had to create a certain emotional distance to do that. But once I had finished it, yes, I think it did. I think it did in a way. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about this, this driving poem. Um, uh, in part, it tells uh, about a family trip to PEI, Prince Edward Island in the Canadian Maritimes. Um, now, I mentioned that now I live in Western Canada in Alberta, but I grew up in the east in Elmer, Quebec, which is about a two days drive to the ocean. So I overlay memories of this family trip with my father's life as a dementia patient. And these two time frames are joined also by the image of driving as it related to his working life as an arborist. Uh, and this poem is called Mnemonic. It's a longer poem. Associations are tumbling around our shoulders like the cold pounding of the Atlantic once we got there. There was a pattern of leaves or landscape. There was the sound of thrashing surf as a finale to that two-day drive to PEI. There was the map of the Maritimes spread across our knees in the back seat of the station wagon, that long run up the St. Lawrence, past Quebec City and Riviere de Lou, camping in a field that first night. He used to make up math puzzles with the odometer. He used to hold strings of numbers, miles of blacktop in his head, looping scrolls of landscape, sky and more and more road rising up in the hours of highway driving. Retention or retrieval is what we want, some spell, some combination of special words that will unlock him. Aid memoir. Pushing up beside the St. Lawrence, the turn at Riviere de Loup, the blackness of those nighttime woods where we set up camp. I'll need a map to remind me of who he was, and I'll need my own eighth memoir. How memory is a device, a whispered pattern of wind. How memory is the movement of leaves overhead, shushing together in the breeze. A line of poplars becomes a fortress, a fence, and a shelter. The remembered pattern leaves made against the sky in summer, a shuffling, an arranging of recollections like cards, like snapshots flickering and running together so rapidly in sequence, they create an afterimage of motion, a kinetoscope of remembering. A mnemonic is a tool to remember facts or large amounts of information. Mnemonic is the ability to retrieve facts. He needs a retrieval system. What day it is, where he lives, why he is spoon-fed, how he got here, when he can or cannot leave. 
A dementia ward is a fortress and a shelter. If only he could remember the shape of the linked halls and what a door actually means. What is locked? What is unlocked? Somewhere in his untethered memory, he is taking his family on a road trip to the ocean. Somewhere in his mind, he is driving, getting behind the wheel, driving to work. Somehow he is getting his crew ready for the day. His men need to be set up and sent to the job sites. His men need to be told which trees need trimming, transplanting, which need to be taken down. If he could find the muster point, he could drive there. If he could remember driving, a steering wheel, a foot on the gas, road and sky, his destination imprinted on the map of his mind. If he could remember, he could get there. Oh, again, another another beautiful one. And it's, you know, I love how you pull in the history of, mm. of who he yeah. was all his life and um, who he probably... Well, right, because he's not just his illness. He is his own history and, and his, his whole past life before illness. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. I... I think so often people forget the importance of of those things and and mm. just the triggers that they can that they can pull out of people at times. Uh, I remember my mom struggling one time to be um, lifted in the Hoyer lift, and she was just horribly frightened. And um, yeah. the staff was like, "Dorothy, just bend your knees and." hold your arms out straight and we're going to push this spot and we're going to get you up. And she's got the ropes around her wrist and the big around her back. And she's, she's just, she was cussing them out up one side, down the other. And the two Mm -hmm. were just kind of ping ponging back and forth saying, it's okay. We're just getting you down to lunch to see your friends. And, and um, this particular time I was standing outside the door. This is when my mom had moved to the lowest functioning unit, which of course isn't with the, the community calls it, but that's what the family knows it is. <laughs> and, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I stood outside that door just bawling and just praying. My, and my stomach was just twisted thinking it's so unfair for her to feel this pain and this fear. And, you know, there's gotta be a way around this. And I wiped my eyes and I pushed open the door and my mom's beat red face is still screaming at them. And the staff are again, just not reacting wow. to her at all. And all of a sudden, I felt this arm go around my shoulder, and I hear my dad whisper in my ear, ask her to go water skiing. And, I'm, and I looked at oh. the empty bed next to my mom, thinking I'm having a nervous breakdown, that bed. <laughs> and, yeah. and I realized I have nothing to lose. So I stepped up to my mom, and I just, you know, with a big smile on my face, said, Mom, do you want to go water skiing? And she instantly changed from seething mad to this face of joy. And she said, well, yeah. And so I I did pretty much the same commands. I said, knees bent, arms straight. And I said, hit it for them to push the button. (laughs) And she rose up with this gigantic smile on her face. And her hands were curved around a tow rope that wasn't there. And asking wow. her to go water skiing using that history worked. Yeah, for so months. her previous true life, yeah. And worked for months and months, and then we would have these conversations of all these other things, you know. And it worked because again, yeah. dad taught everybody how to water ski with those three commands, and so hmm. 
was just wrote in her mind. And um, yeah. I would come and visit and we would talk about water skiing and, you know, did she, did she go barefoot? Yeah. Did she, you know, slalom? Did she drop one? Did she spray somebody? Did she, you know, all these different tricks and <laughs> And we would. She was still there. Yeah. Yeah. We had these fabulous conversations, and in her mind, we went water skiing. You know, six to eight times a day, and life was good. And so, you know, relating that past, I think, is is very important. Um, you also wrote a poem about your your mother um, called yeah. "My Mother's Voice," that just highlights really the the struggles. Um, that she went through and the emotional de devastation um, that this yeah. had on her, you know, as a spouse. And I, I think a lot of our listeners will, will really relate to this as well, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, this is a, a tribute to my mom, who who was my father's caregiver, primary caregiver, before and after he was hospitalized. Um, but in, in this poem, I write from her point of view, um, uh, so, so from her point of view, the story of my father's illness, his decline, and long-term care. Uh, another longer poem, uh, My Mother's Voice. He was agitated. He said he had to go to work. The doctor said, we'll put him in the hospital to do tests. The doctor made phone calls, admitted him. When can I take him home? That was my question. You can't, said the doctor. This is the beginning. He's not going home. That was July 21st, 2010. When are we going home, he'd ask. Soon, I'd say. You don't know what it's like when someone is lost like that. I can still see so vividly that pullover sweater, dark gray with some details, some pattern. I came home on my 45-minute lunch break one day, and he wasn't there. I had given him a road map. I said, you go out the door, lock the door, go right until you come to the elevator. Go down to the main floor where the doors open into the lobby. Take a right to the gym. I was constantly worried. He hadn't wandered much before. He slept a lot. I was always trying to protect him, it was a daily thing. I always had one ear open. We had no name for what was happening to him. From June 2009, he wasn't right. I cared for him at home for a year. The doctor said, you can't do this anymore. Yes, I can. No, you can't. I play that movie over in my head all the time. He was found wandering on Kananaskis Way, wearing that patterned sweater. Where were you going? I asked. To work, he said. When he was first admitted to the hospital, I got a call from a nurse. Can you come over to calm your husband down? He had picked up a walker and slammed her across the knees. They gave him a sedative. This is the beginning. He's not going home. He was sullen, maybe confused. I can't know what his emotion was. I was just aching for him. I spent most of my time with him. When are we going home, he'd ask. Soon, I'd say. He was in acute care from July to December 2010. 
He was in long-term care from December 2010 until his death, March 4th, 2013. I don't mean to cry. A few days after being admitted to acute care, he did a test. He did a drawing of a clock, but with the hands outside the clock face, like he didn't know what it was, and he couldn't write his name. This man with such a beautiful penmanship, the dots weren't connecting in his brain. I wonder what's facing me today. I think that every day, every time I approach long-term care, I don't mean to cry. The progression of the disease. How can you even track it? What happens in a person's mind? The dots don't connect. I went to group therapy for families. Can you imagine, they said, going into your kitchen to make coffee? The step-by-step of it? These people can't do that anymore. These people. In the beginning, I'd bring him home at noon on Saturday, make a meal. We'd watch the hockey game. One time I couldn't figure out his insulin needle, so I took him back to the hospital. He fell getting out of the car. I had to drag him up. I had to drag him. No, no, he's fine, I said. I said that all the time. I don't mean to cry. He was agitated, said he had to go to work. He was found wandering, though work, work was thousands of miles away. Work was years behind him. He was found wandering on Kananaskis Way. What if he made it out to the highway? The doctor admitted him. The doctor said, he's not going home. I did his laundry. I didn't leave it to the hospital staff. I took it home. I showered him. He could stand up at the beginning. Later, he had a shower chair. I'd wash him, dress him, feed him. I had to. This is what I do, I said. He was my husband. I did what I had to. Wow. I don't know how you read these. I would just be tearing up constantly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's an emotional poem. Yeah, it really yeah. it really is. It just and it just it describes so many things that that people go through. It's uh yeah. again beautifully beautifully done. Um you have a couple of of poems that you um, talk about um, releasing the ghost, you know, at the end of your, your father's life. And, yes. and uh, you know, I think, again, these are, this, this end of life journey is just, I mean, even more intense than during, I think, um, for, mm-hmm. many, for many, many people. Um, so can you kind of set up releasing the ghost and share that with us? Yeah. Um... As you said, a a sad but undeniable fact is long-term illness wears you down. Um, The sadness and the relentlessness creates a kind of pre-death grief, and that just is exhausting. And and sadly, my father began to become a ghost for us long before he died. Um, And so this poem is called Releasing the Ghost. When my father goes, he will release us from the ghost he has become, a mad apparition of loss whose relief is death. He can't talk 
or feed himself, can't walk unaided. And I must rail against my guilt, my shame in writing, in showing how dementia is devouring him, remaking him into a frail shade, escorted to the john down the hall, a healthcare aide at either elbow. The refrain being how dementia is sucking back the last bone and skin and guts of him, leaving a sad paper shadow, a faulty, flimsy copy to escort us in grief, dovetailing into guilt at how we long for my father's death to relieve us of his pain and the ghost he has become. You know, that's a, um, that's a tough one because a lot of people will go, how could you, how could you pray, you know, for his journey to end? Yes. But yet I think it's, you know, and you can't judge anybody's journey, but you know, when, when you're dealing with a chronic illness and the pain is, is heavy on all sides. Um, yeah. I think it's quite common. I, I think, um, not everybody's willing to talk about it, but those thoughts, I think, cross people's minds. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think it's okay to say, and some people, you know, put it in their healthcare um, declarations. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to live that long. I, you know, I, I would rather go out sooner than later um, than to be in pain or cause other others pain. And again, I, there's no yeah. judgment in that. I, I just, um, I think it's well, I don't think that our emotions are logical. I mean, it's illogical. You don't want your your father, you don't want your loved one to die, but you don't want this to be their life. And it's illogical. And there's no way out of it. Yeah. 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 You're just yeah. Kind, of, kind of spinning around with it all. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Now, you have an, another one um, right. that's called um, Wanting the Call if you don't mind setting that up. Yeah, that's even more explicit. And and, and I, I guess in this poem, I, I felt I needed to speak to a certain truth about long-term illness, especially dementia. You love the person, but you watch pieces of them die off right in front of you incrementally. Uh, and you watch their, in my father's case, silent suffering, and you suffer as well. And you can't help but wish that that would stop. And it's not um, sentiments to be proud of, but it, it's a kind of truth. So I wrote this poem called Wanting the Call. I want the phone call, annunciation, an end to suffering. I want the call so we can have him as he lives in us, in our memories. I want my father's death completed. It has been coming at us with its claws out. I want this death done, over and done with us. I want bells to release us, complete us with their tolling, with the totality of ending. I want the phone to ring out and free us from being inside the dying with him. I want time to work in reverse and for the sick man to disappear. I want death. I want it done. Yeah, that is, that is very powerful and just um, exhausting too. When I think about mm -hmm. back at the, in those days, it, it just, 
it's an exhaustive process. My dad had a brain tumor and, you know, was given a year oh, and, dear. and lived four and a half years. So, I mean, we were, we were definitely gifted. Um, yeah. but, but at the end when he was struggling, I remember, you know, being by his side and, and just, you know, it's okay. You know, you can go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you don't have to stick around for us. It's, you know, and just being, mm-hmm. being honest about about those things because you you know how hard, you know their their body is is working, um, let alone their their mind and their soul. You know, with the, yes. with the whole process, and um, and it's um, it's a tough one. Um, at the end, you wished you could have reached your dad and and known for sure that he knew just how much um, love you all had for him. And, you know, at the end, they typically aren't going to pop up and go, I got it. <laughs> no. Um, though yeah, it's, more logic. <laughs> yeah. But I think it is something that we all, we all wonder, do, do they know? Um, and, you know, so you, you wrote another poem um, on that. Um, he didn't open his eyes, it's called. Um, which again, another powerful poem, if you don't mind sharing. Okay. He didn't open his eyes. We had to wonder if he had already gone to the other side. We never said death, though we feared he would die. Not die, because we never said that word. We were told to go. There was not much time with this final withdrawal of treatment. He didn't open his eyes. He didn't speak, never spoke again, not even to go back in memory, back to the work talk I'd heard time before last when I fed him minced broccoli and soft mashed potato all scrambled together on a teaspoon, pretending this reversal, pretending his going back to utter dependency was not hurting me, though hurting is not the word. There is no word for any of it. No word for how he never opened his eyes. Spoon feeding my father had felt like a privilege, like a prayer I didn't know I'd uttered. And did he know it was his 52-year-old daughter witnessing him and his suffering? How could he know how much love I had when he was almost gone and could not speak a single word, not one? He never opened his eyes. Wow, that's uh, I, again. I can I can so relate to that. Um, my my dad's eyes were closed when he died, but yet I I actually felt his energy go through my body. Oh, wow! Electrifying. And when my mom died, I wasn't even there. I was uh, I was in Arizona when she was actively dying. My whole family, I think, thought I was having a nervous breakdown because I'm always the one there. And yet she had come to me in dreams and said, no, you, you need to be gone. Everyone else needs to experience death, Lori, and I need to know you're going to continue your work. And so I was really comfortable with that and, and, uh-huh. uh, and wasn't there. And yet I got to experience the whole process through video which was really powerful. So I actually got to see her take her last breath. Again, eyes weren't open, but uh-huh. very intimate. And, and even though it was long distance, mm-hmm. I think that's something that is um, not tapped into as much because 
even if their eyes aren't open, um, you still have the satisfaction of knowing you were there. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, and I think that that's a really important important factor if that's important for you. Some people are very uncomfortable um, with being there, and and to me, I, I I've done it so many times. It's just an honor um, uh-huh. to be able to to be there with someone. Um, do you have any other uh, poems that you wanted to share? We still have a few minutes, and um, I just, uh, like I said, I think your your book is just beautifully, beautifully done, and, um, you know, I, I so thank you for sharing all these intimate um, moments of your journey with us. Well, thank you. Um, I, I wonder if I could maybe end in a poem that, that um, looks into the light looks uh, maybe into, you know, a future afterwards. It's right near the end of the book. It's called, It Is Good to Begin Again. It is good to want the world set in motion again, imagined over again. Good to need a clear sequence of framed recollections to picture his life through the looking glass, making up each single image poem. It is good to assemble poems that are miniature engines, small, smoking, rattling machines built of language, resetting the clock of the world with words. Good that letters revert to pictograms, which are unexploded spring bulbs, mere inches under still frozen ground, waiting for the sun to make the world begin again. Oh, that's beautiful. That's a, a perfect Thank way you. to wrap things up. Um, do you want to tell people um, how they can contact you? Uh, yes, um, I guess on my, my website, suecroll.wordpress.com, there's the contact page there. You can contact me also at Turnstone Press as well. Um, the book can be ordered from Turnstone as well if people are interested or, or Amazon as well. You're on Facebook too, correct? So- oh, yes. I'm also on Facebook as well under Sue Kroll, uh, S-U-C-R-O-L-L. Yep. You spell Sue a little different, so that's important <laughs> <laughs> for them. And we've got these links um, on the on the pages. Right. right. Oh, and I guess I could give email as well. Okay. Uh, which is similar, uh, sue.kroll at shaw.ca, S-H-A-W dot C-A. Okay. Any of those ways, yeah. Wonderful. Again, I, I thank you so much for for sharing this hour with us and sharing sharing your book. Um, it's, it's very powerful and, again, I think beautifully written. Thank you so much. Bye now. Bye-bye. And so in wrapping up again, you can reach uh, Sue uh, by just following the links there. And um, also feel free to reach out to us at our main website, which is alzheimerspeaks.com. That's alzheimerspeaks.com. From there, you can get to our radio show. You can get to the blog, our Dementia Chats videos, our initiatives and projects page, and and so much more. If you're looking for a, a keynoter or a trainer or consultant, uh, please reach out to me that way as well. And in the meantime, have a wonderful week.
We'll talk soon. Don't forget to hit subscribe and share. Bye-bye. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what can be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.